Good evening and welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. Again, that's 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackelford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on the air here at Red River Radio for over nine years. I'm ready to answer your questions about birds this evening, so let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. So we start off with a recap of our conservation tip from last month. And we talked about, at the end of the last episode, about where did that species go? Maybe it's a familiar bird in your backyard and all of a sudden it disappears. And, of course, we... Don't want to blame it on widespread declines that we've talked about repeatedly on this show. Hopefully that's not what it is, but maybe it's because of seasonal changes. Just like we see with our plants, and they change with the seasons. You know, they they go leaf off or leaf on, or they flower. These are all seasonal events. So maybe that bird has disappeared because of a seasonal change in and, and, and it's the weather that's causing it. So what you want to do is kind of pay attention to your backyard birds to maybe answer that question on your own. You know, is that bird passing through? Do you only see it in migration? Or do you see it every day, thus it's a year-round resident? Or do you only see it in the breeding season when it's nesting in the backyard? And so the trick is to keep records uh, of, of the birds around you. That, that That's a lot of fun. That's something to, that's really fun to do, especially first dates and last dates for migratory species. Um, the first time you see it in the spring and the last time you see it in the fall, that, that can really be a lot of fun. And in the old days, and I, I'd still recommend this for some people, is, is to have a calendar on the wall dedicated where you can scribble in a bird's name on that calendar when you you see that indigo bunning at your feeder and it's April 20th and you're like, oh, okay, it's migration. That's why I only see them right now. Um, So a calendar might work. And if you're tech savvy, the the free app we've talked about a lot, eBird, that's a great way to do it because then you can put it in electronically and keep track of all your records and see patterns over time. So If that species has disappeared, again, hopefully it's not because of uh, widespread declines in birds. It's maybe because of of seasonal change. And and seasonal changes account for a predictable disappearance of many of our favorite birds. Next, we're going to profile a bird. And tonight, we're going to talk about the yellow-throated vireo. It's a small songbird that occurs high up in the hardwood canopy, thus it's best located by its song heard here. (laughs) 
This species is slightly larger than the familiar Carolina chickadee. This forest bird breeds in every state east of the Rocky Mountains and migrates south to winter in parts of the Caribbean, much of Central America, and south to Colombia and Venezuela. This migratory species returns to our listening area in the second half of March, and its song means that spring has arrived with many more breeding species returning soon. Like other vireos, they, they look like a stocky warbler with a stout bill that's used for gleaning insects from the leaves and branches, typically up high in deciduous trees. The sexes are alike, with a mostly gray and olive body, with a touch of yellow in parts of the face and throat. It also has two prominent white wing bars. The song we heard just a minute ago is much like its cousin, the red-eyed vireo that we profiled in 2018, but instead of clean whistles of the red-eyed, notice the burry and buzzy tones to each note that, that sung a tad slower um, by the yellow-throated vireo. To see a photo of a yellow-throated vireo snapped by James Childress, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. And that vireo is spelled V-I-R-E-O. And here, here's a fun thing with the phone. If you text somebody that, and guess what? Spell check jumps in and says, no, you must have wanted to put video because it's just one letter difference. And yeah, so you got to constantly watch spell check even for simple words I, I get so frustrated with autocorrect but uh, with bird names it, it makes it even more challenging so vireo is a v-i-r-e-o spelling and again that's the yellow-throated vireo Let, let's listen to that song one more time if we could you can hear that burry buzzy tone i mentioned so not a clear whistle, it's just got a bit of a zzz to it. Bzzz, zzz. And this is a bird that you're going to hear before you see. You're going to have trouble seeing it, even with binoculars. They, you're looking up at the belly and it looks just like a leaf. And they sit there motionless and sing for hours. Not literally hours, not in the one spot, but they're... They are singing for hours, but they're hopping around occasionally, moving their position. But that's the yellow-throated vireo. It's one of my favorites. And like I mentioned, they start returning to our listening area in mid-March. So that's right now. They should be back any minute. Maybe some people out there have already detected one. I haven't. Um, and it's always fun to have that first bird come back and and then like i mentioned then you've got a whole bunch of other species that are soon coming back from the wintering grounds they're returning to the breeding grounds and they've migrated back here and uh, they're going to raise their little family and and have a good life hopefully so that's the yellow-throated vireo so tonight i'm very excited that we have a guest he's called in on the radio because he's a busy traveling guy. He's even traveling right now. He's calling in from the Texas Panhandle and on the western side, not far from New Mexico. So he's real close to the mountain time zone. And er Earl Nottingham, are you there? I'm here, Cliff. Great. Thank, thanks for being on the show, Earl. I really appreciate it. And uh, and what what's the weather like up there in the Panhandle today? 
Well, just kind of overcast, high clouds, uh, a lot of wind. Yeah. And, uh, I was freezing this morning, so kind of what you expect of the northern panhandle of Texas right. this time of year. Right, right. And, it, and spring hasn't returned up there yet, but where we are, we've got dogwoods and azaleas and wisteria and all kinds of other things blooming. Red buds are finishing, if not already finished. Um, so yeah, we're we're in the heart of spring here at our latitude, but you're considerably north of us. So yeah, it's it's a beautiful beautiful brown out. Here. <laughs> it, it's it's the color that every nature photographer wants, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so Earl, uh, tell us about yourself. Give us a, a brief bio sketch, if you would. You know where you were born, where you've lived. Uh, where you went to school, family life, all that kind of stuff. Go ahead. Oh, goodness. Well, I was born in kind of Marlin, Texas. It's kind of the southeast of Waco. And I lived there uh, my first six years, and my parents got transferred from the Marlin VA Center and to, to the Temple VA Center. And so I spent pretty much the rest of my life in Temple. Uh-huh. there, uh, Temple schools, uh, Got involved in photography there and uh, went on to uh, uh, East Texas State University uh, for their photography program. And then started to death for a few years as a freelance photographer. And finally, I uh, started uh, submitting to uh, magazines like uh, Texas Highways Magazine and Texas Parks and Wildlife. and. About 1996, a uh, staff position came open at Parks and Wildlife, and I applied for it. And against all odds, I got it. Awesome. Awesome. And you, you mentioned you, version. Yeah. And you mentioned East Texas State. That 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 name is gone. Why don't you tell listeners what that university is called now? Well, they turned it into uh, Texas A&M at Commerce. Yeah, and I, and I'm sure that's hard to 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 accept that change. I know lots of people that don't like their universities change, changing their names, but that, it, it happens. So, so Earl Nottingham, we're very pleased to have you on here. Um, uh, Earl is a very accomplished photographer. He has a book that I have in my hand called Wild Focus, 25 Years of Texas Parks and Wildlife Photography. It was published in the last, help me out, was it last year? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's very new, very fresh. Um, and so tell, tell us about your, your, your past work position at Parks and Wildlife and where you officed and what you've done and, and then maybe go into where you are now and what you're doing, Earl. Well, uh, I was lucky that, uh, they let me work out of my, uh, uh, town of Temple. We had a regional office in Temple with some game wardens and, uh, uh, biologist there, and I, I told them, I, I said, hey, you know, I, uh, I travel around the state. I don't really need to go into Austin very much, and I'm taking a lot of time commuting from Temple to Austin. Like, Can I please work in the uh, Temple office? And I couldn't believe it when they said, well, yeah, that's a good idea. Why didn't you Why didn't you do that 10 years ago? Huh. So, uh, <laughs> I guess, I, I guess digital photography and emails really helped with that, too, right? Think about how that would have been really tough in the 70s or 80s when it was all two-by-two two slide film. Oh, yeah, yeah. The digital revolution uh, made all the difference. That's right, that's when right. First, first, set up, first set up my little office there at the Temple Regional Office. I, it, it was in the back of the building, 
and uh, I'd be sending a lot of digital files, photos, and videos, and I was, I was sucking all the bandwidth out of the, the network. And I could hear the secretaries up front and the, the ladies who sold hunting and fishing licenses. It screamed back, Earl, you're on the computer again. <laughs> so finally they said, well, why don't you just work out of your house? Oh, okay, I'll do that. That's that's so, good good perk there, huh? Yeah, but, uh, yeah, most of it uh, involved uh, traveling in the state of Texas. It's pretty much every uh, every road, every corner, and uh, it involved uh, uh, different types of photography. Right. Uh, Obviously, a lot of landscape work, uh, uh, some wildlife, uh, people photography. So, you know, it was a mixed bag. I, I, I tell people if I was a – the analogy is if I was a doctor, I'd be a general practitioner. Uh-huh. But I was a general photographer. Yeah. You know, there's so many photographers that specialize in certain things. There's, there's guys that can spend all week in a, in, a, in a blind waiting for a deer to come out. Or, yeah. You know, there's guys that you know, do birds. But um, – uh, because of the agency's mission, uh, I had to pretty much do a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's right. You had to, you know, all the different activities that the department promoted, camping and surfing and fishing and birding and hiking. So that's true. And I noticed that in your book, Wild Focus, that, you know, it's separated into three kind of chapters, interesting places, like you mentioned, landscapes, human faces, the people, and then the, the animals, the wild critters you saw. And, and like you said, it, it, you don't specialize in one, but you've mastered all three of those, which is really exciting. Um, so tell us, how did you get started in photography? Did you have any early influences, and did you start out with outdoor photography? Well, the earliest photography was uh, using my mom's uh, Brownie Hawkeye camera, and with the flashbulb on it, and we're, we're talking, uh, you know, six years old, but I, I was fascinated by it. And uh, we're, we learned the hard way that it, it really hurts when a flashbulb goes off in your hand. Uh-huh. Uh, I'd run around the house wasting a lot of film with that. And anyway, in uh, a junior high school, uh, I was friends with a girl. Her, her father owned a photography studio across the street from the, the, the school. And uh, I would go there after uh, school hours and just kind of hang around. I, I was fascinated with photography. And, and one day the, uh, the photographer said, well, why don't you just come in the dark room and I'll show you how you know, we develop. So I went in there. And as a lot of photographers will tell you, when they first saw that print uh, developed in that chemistry, the image came up. It, it was magic. Uh, and at, at that time, at that time, you're hooked. Yeah, there's no going back. And it was all black and white. So uh, uh, I was just uh, transformed by that and, and fell in love with photography. So it continued on into high school. Uh, worked with the the student newspaper and the high school annual. Kind of got my feet wet there. Uh, after after uh, high school, I went to a uh, a two year school in Atlanta, Georgia. And after that, I thought I knew everything about photography, so I came back to Temple and went to work for the newspaper there and uh, realized real quick that I didn't want to be a newspaper photographer. Uh, uh, it, it was fun, but uh, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. And uh, so ended up going to uh, East Texas State. A lot of my colleagues at the paper, you know, they all had their, their, their degrees. Uh, you really need to get, get a, a bachelor's degree. So that's when I went to East Texas, and it was a 
at that time, it was one of the top photography schools in the country. Uh-huh. It was, it was you know, beating out the, you know, the uh, uh, University of Southern California, RIT, wow. a lot of the big schools. So uh, it was kind of a, you know, little treasure up there in the woods of East Texas in commerce. Yeah, that's neat. Uh, I, you know, and I was lucky that they had uh, such a wide curriculum. Uh, you know, it, it was uh, portrait photography, uh, uh, black and white photography, photojournalism. Uh, commercial photography, just a little bit of everything. And, and that was really, I think, helped prepare me for uh, Parks and Wildlife. Mm-hmm. But between then and Parks and Wildlife, I became a freelance photographer. I got my degree, said, all right, I'm on a roll now. So I went in the world on my own and starved to death for about 15 years <laughs> uh, for my art. <laughs> and uh, it was, in fact, when the, when the offer came from Parks and Wildlife. I told my wife I, I felt like I was giving up my soul uh, just just for the sake of the check every month. And she said, "Please give up your soul. Give up your soul." <laughs> steady, so steady pay. That helps. It does. Well, good. It frees you. Um, you're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford, and this is a call-in show. We have on the air Earl Nottingham, and he's a nature photographer. Outdoor photographer, people photographer, he's an everything photographer. If you have questions for Earl about cameras and photography, call in at 1-800-552-8502. If you have bird questions, you can call in. I'm here to answer those calls. So tonight, birds and photography are the topic. So 800-552-8502. So, Earl, is there a difference between what we call outdoor photography and nature photography? Or are those synonymous? Uh, not really. Those terms are kind of nebulous uh, okay. and, and somewhat synonymous. Uh, we use them interchangeably okay. all, all the time. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, you can say you're an outdoor photographer, nature photographer. I, actually, I ended up thinking that, uh, you know, what kind of photographer was I? And the best I could figure, I was a conservation photographer. Uh-huh. So all the things you mentioned, you know, the outdoor and the nature and everything else, it all uh, goes back to, to conservation. Yeah. And I think that kind of sums it up. Right. So we, we probably have a lot of people listening that that want to get into photography, or maybe they already are there and they want to get better. And I can remember that... The, the Parks and Wildlife magazine, you would have photography tips in past issues of the Parks and Wildlife magazine. So what recommendations do you have to listeners who want to get started in nature photography? Tell us a little bit about maybe some equipment or clubs they can join or online help or just some guidance. What do you What do you think? Yeah. Well, you know, actually, I think it starts off with a question. Um why do, why do I want to be a photographer? And, and, and exactly what type of photography do I, do I want to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've asked, asked myself that rhetorical question a lot of times. Uh, what is it about photography I love? Why do, why do I do it? And, uh, you know, a, after years of pondering it, it, it seems like it's, it's just because it gives me the opportunity to, to get outside and for a split second, you know, enjoy some facet of nature. It's a, it's, it's your ticket to the outside. It, it, it's a catalyst, I think. 
uh, it's almost an excuse just to, to get out and be a way to, uh, to enjoy nature. So, you know, people want to do different types of photography. I mean, uh, are you, do you want to be a photographer that just have uh, prints on your wall? Uh, do you want to just share them with other people? Uh, you want to have an art gallery or something? Uh, you know, why are you doing it? What's, what's the yeah. end run here? Yeah. And, 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 and that's going to dictate, uh, what type of equipment and, or pardon the pun, but you know, how you focus your, your efforts. But as far as outdoor, uh, nature photography, um, the, the secret is, um, is light. Uh, you know, you can, you can take any camera, uh, from your cell phone to the highest dollar camera and, and with the right light, uh, it, it's a magic picture. And I tell people when I have, a, a workshops and seminars, I say, you know, if, if you had to leave right now out of this seminar, let me give you 90% of what I was going to tell you. It, it's all about the light, more specifically, the, the quality of light, the times of day you shoot, uh, and this is regardless of the subject. It doesn't matter if you're photographing a bird or a mountain or a flower or a person. Uh, what makes that photograph exciting and engaging is the quality of light uh, that's on it. Uh, and, and also the uh, the art aspect. Uh, going back to East Texas State, they, uh, they made us take an art history class. And I remember complaining to, uh, to my uh, counselor, you know, I'm going to be a photographer. You know, what do, what do I need art for? But in retrospect, that was the most one of the most valuable classes mm-hmm. I took. It, you know, we, we looked over the, the old masters' paintings and, and art through the uh, through the ages to find out what what was it about that work that has impact that that grabs the viewer's eye, uh, that engages you. Uh, you know, that makes you stand there with your mouth wide open in awe of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there are common denominators, you know, composition, lighting, use of color. And and, the, and those translate directly to what makes a good photograph. So for an aspiring photographer, I, I'd say, you know, go back, study some, uh, you know, the old master's works, uh, you know, using leading lines and composition, and, you know, all the so-called rules. Uh so you know that's the artistic aspect. I think mm-hmm. photography has the the uh, uh, the art aspect and then the technical aspect. You got to know the, the nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. Uh, cameras are so good now. Uh, you don't have to you know work for a long time to uh, you know try to get super f- proficient with a the camera. They yeah. do a good job on their own. Uh, they're just the means to an end. They're a tool. Uh huh. Yeah, and, and now you can just shoot 100 images in a few seconds where when it was ectochrome, you were you, every every shot was several dollars and you you didn't dare waste pictures. So it's nice you can take a ton of pictures and then say, "Okay, I t- took 72 pictures of that cedar waxwing. I'm sure one of them will be good enough." And sure enough, there's just one that's good cuz birds are moving all around. So I remember, you know, when I would, when I was shooting uh, a large format, we're talking about four by five inch camera mm-hmm. and medium format cameras with transparency film. Uh, I'd go out to say Big Bend region, set my four by five camera up, and uh, 
film was expensive. You're absolutely right. So you had to get it right the first time. Yeah. And on a couple of occasions, I spent all the time getting that beautiful picture. Then by the time you drive all the way back down and sit in the lab for a few hours and finally get your image, only to find out that uh, it was either overexposed or out of focus. Yeah. Uh, that's a real downer. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but the, the digital world has just totally uh, changed everything. Yeah, you, you mentioned light, and I thought I'd st- – I'd mentioned we do the same thing with observing birds. You know, you you don't really like that harsh noon, 12 noon high sun that's everything's just bleached out. Um, and certainly you don't either. You, you, you really want those soft light moments of morning and evening, right? For, for especially for landscapes and, and things like that. Well, when we're bird watching, you know, we we do a lot of the same things when we have a scope on the mud flat, like on at Bolivar at the beach on the upper Texas coast. You want the sun behind you. You don't want to be 12 noon. It's too harsh. It it just bleaches out the birds. You you want the sun to be setting maybe or the sun to be rising, and it, and that soft light just gives you the best opportunity to see the characteristics of these shorebirds and. And isn't that right? You're looking for that same sort of scenario for photography? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's exceptions to every rule. You know, I tell people, oh, don't go out and shoot high noon. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's bleached out. But sure enough, somebody's going to take a great picture like that. <laughs> but, but as a rule of thumb, you know, to put the odds in your favor, and that's what good outdoor photography is about, is putting all the odds in your favor. Uh. Uh, the early morning, you know, late evening light, and, and also from the aspect of the behavior of the animals, uh, you know, they're more active than most, that, most animals. Yeah, good point. That's right. It, it, so that, for, for birds, right first thing in the morning, they're they've been sleeping since day daylight. You know, since the yesterday, they're hungry. Their fuel tanks empty, so they're super active, looking for breakfast. So you're right. Getting out with the camera is a good time in the morning as well. Right. So so the behavior, you know. It, is aspect at those times of day, but um, from the lighting perspective, uh, you have a couple of things happening. First of all, the uh, it's a warmer light, mm. uh, anywhere from you know yellow to orange, and uh, that that has a, a physio- physiological aspect on people looking at the picture. Warm mm-hmm. tones jump out at you. I yeah, mean, they're warmer. They're uh, they're pleasant, uh, but also if you do have um, some direct light. It's, it's a strafing kind of a light. It, it, it shapes. It provides form to the animal and show, shows texture, and especially, you know, birds. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you, you've got to maintain the detail in the feathers uh, of birds. And, uh, you know, a, a nice side light or back light can help uh, accentuate that. Uh, so, uh, but, yeah, a soft light is, uh, is good. Your, your first morning light... Uh, yeah, it'll be a little directional sun, but you'll still have some other uh, sky in there to soften up the shadows. So you could call it a soft light, uh, but with with the sun, uh, you know, a total totally diffused light with the cloud cover is a beautiful light too. It lets you see in the shadows, especially with birds up in the trees. There's so many, it's so much contrast between the sunlit and the shadow areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just hard to see with the, that direct sun. But any kind of a you know, soft, diffused sky uh, really brings out the, the shadows. Uh, or, you know, you can go with artificial lighting. You know, there's a lot of people using strobes uh-huh. to, to eliminate the animals. Um, you know, that, that's meant to fill in the shadows and, and you know, 
create a, a strong light. So there's, there's several different ways to, to achieve the uh, the right lighting, but it's all uh, intended to be artistic in some way. You're listening to Bird Calls here on Red River Radio. I'm Cliff Shackelford. We're joined via telephone by Earl Nottingham, a longtime nature photographer. And if you have any questions for Earl, the number is 800-552-8502. If you've ever had photography questions, this is your guy. Don't wait. Don't wait till 655. We start shutting down at 655. So pick up the phone now, 800-552-8502. We have Earl Nottingham in the, on the phone tonight. And if you have a bird question, I'm here to help as well. So you've got lots of opportunity and take advantage of that. Otherwise, I will keep asking questions. And Earl, we had, uh, a, we had a caller that uh, left a message and didn't want to be on the air. And the question is, which telephoto lens should I buy to make the best shot? Which telephoto lens in millimeters? That's a great question. And um, if you're if you're serious about uh, nature photography, more specifically uh, close-ups of birds and things like that, you're going to have to get around into the 500 to 600 millimeter range. Wow! And that that's equivalent of, from a uh, of a 35 millimeter camera. Uh, with some of the newer cameras with smaller sensors, uh, that same Equivalent magnification comes from about a 300 to 400 millimeter. Okay. And uh, yeah, most people actually starting with the smaller sensors, the APS-C sensors, and now even some of the four-thirds smaller sensors. You, you kind of get more bang for your magnification buck uh, out of the smaller yeah. sensors. Obviously, it's not going to be quite as sharp as the full-frame sensor, but uh, from the ones I've seen, they look really, really good. But, but uh, that's the range you need. Now, as far as the quality of the lens, uh, a lot of people start off with a, uh, uh, not, not a kit lens, but it's, uh, they're, they're fairly inexpensive. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say maybe three or $400. Uh, but the problem with the inexpensive uh, cell photo lens, and I'm talking about zoom lenses primarily, mm-hmm. uh, 200 to 600, uh, 100 to 500, things like, things like that, the inexpensive ones do not let in as much light as the expensive lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's what you're paying for with the expensive lens is that larger piece of glass up front that's going to gather more light efficiently and let you shoot at a faster shutter speed or a, a larger a larger aperture. And, um, uh, you know, those things come in handy. Now, now, those expensive lenses, again, they're heavy. Yeah. And sometimes they're too heavy for the feel. But I would say uh, make, your, make your investment in good lenses or good glass, as we say, because uh, you know, I noticed at Parks and Wildlife, uh, we would go through uh, camera bodies, uh, you know, get a new one just every couple of years as soon as the, the latest one came out, but we kept the same lenses because they were uh-huh. such high quality uh-huh. that uh, there was really nothing better. So, you know, make that investment in, in good glass, and it will, it will pay off for and, you. And the big, so. the big companies like Canon and Nikon, they're keeping the, 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 the lens to marry up to the, the new body style? In, a, in other uh, words, yeah. you, you, you can put a 1980 Canon lens on a new can, Canon body? Uh, yeah, uh, case in point, um, we shoot with a lot of the uh, uh, 
I say older Canon DSLRs that uh, use the EF mount. Now, the, the new bodies out are the RF mount. However, they do have an adapter, uh-huh. very inexpensive, that you adapt your older EF glass to the uh, RF body. And they work perfectly fine. The autofocus works fine. And uh, everything marries properly. Oh, that's that's so, good. There's there's some cell phone yeah. companies that could learn from this. You know, you get the new upgraded number 17 phone, and guess what? It doesn't use the same charger and the same earbuds as the 16, and and you got to buy all the new adapters or, or equipment rather. And so that's that's good to know that the cameras are keeping it uh, keeping it real. Yeah, and let me say also that, uh, you know, years ago, we wouldn't even consider buying what we call a Brand X or a third-party lens. Uh, Sigma, Tamron, Fokina, all the, those you hear about. But now, uh, I mean, they make lenses that, that fit those fit your cameras, uh-huh. and they are high-quality lenses. I mean, every review you see... Uh, they compete very highly with them, and uh, you know I'm not going to say a fraction of the cost, but uh, quite a bit less. Yeah. And so there's nothing wrong with with getting one of the third party lenses. Okay. I've, I've got a couple. I love them. Because uh, you mentioned weight, and and then you know if you get a name brand lens, you're talking for 500 millimeter, you're talking quite a bit of weight on your shoulder and your neck, and then pretty good price tag, right? If it's a name brand Nikon, it could be that, that millimeter could be at a zero to the end of it for the price tag. Is that about right? That's a, that's a a good way of putting it. Yeah. 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 So like you said, you know, start off with something like that, something you can afford depending on what you're doing and, uh, and go from there. So, okay, moving on, Earl, uh, tell us what are some of the most challenging outdoor subjects to photograph? Um, and, and then for the beginner, what's the opposite? What are some of the easier subjects for people to start photographing in nature so they can gain experience? Okay, I'm going to start with the easiest. Okay. And uh, <laughs> uh, because what I would suggest for anybody who's interested in it is start in your own backyard. You know, you got feeders up there, and we're talking about birds primarily, but. Uh, you know, a bird sitting on a feeder mm-hmm. is not a great, you know, in-flight motion shot, but it will give you practice with the equipment you have. So you'll know what you're capable of as far as, uh, you know, as proper exposure, proper focus, and how to quickly get a, the camera up there. So, you know, you're going to kind of train on the back door things, and those are fun, too. I've got a friend. He just sits on his back porch all day and, and photographs what comes to the porch, and, and he loves it. So uh, what that's going to do is get, get your muscle memory uh, for your for your equipment, uh, and, and you know then get out in the field. And uh, and one of the things for a while, and one of the hardest things to answer your question is to capture behavior of animals. Uh. Uh, we see picture, we see pictures all day long of a, of a bird sitting on a, a branch or something, or a deer standing out in the field, but. Uh, from a magazine perspective or from a photo editor's perspective, we say, you know, show me something new, something <laughs> else. And, and that usually boils down to a behavioral shot mm. of an animal. Animals in motion, uh, you know, jumping, swimming, whatever. And, and, and that's that's the task is to have the right equipment and the right reflexes to, to, uh, 
capture that moment. Yeah, and and that's what that's what you do. Know, I use that word moment. Uh, it, it's it's changing from just a picture to you capturing a moment. Something is going to be engaging to somebody, and it's going to jump out of, at them. And and that's the idea is to to make any photograph one that uh, when somebody sees it, 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 they have a visceral reaction to it. It, it, it affects them. You know, they, they have to catch their breath or something. Yeah. And so what you do. You know, you're using all the little tools in your bag and all the tricks to make a, a photograph that jump out. You know, you're, you're taking a two-dimensional medium, a piece of paper, and you're trying to make it as three-dimensional as possible to give it a, a sense of presence. And uh, all those little things come together, the the uh, excitement, the, 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 the movement of the animal, the behavior, uh, the lighting, uh, you know, the artistry, uh, the, the composition. Uh, they they all come together, and if they all work and you do it right, then it's one that you know, people will like. Yeah. And from a magazine perspective, we had to do it to sell magazines. Right. You, know, you have all the magazines on the, on the shelf at the store, and you want people to see your cover. And uh, so again, you have to use those little tricks yeah. to make a picture that jumps out, and they, they buy that magazine. Yeah, you mentioned the photographer that's snapping pictures at the bird feeder. Of course, when you get really good, you don't want the feeder in the picture. So I know a lot of people that attach a limb. Maybe it's fallen in the yard and they somehow hoist it up and have that limb hanging real close to the feeder where they really want that bird to land for just a moment before it goes on the feeder. So there's tricks. And and then you see people use mossy limbs because that gives it you know, more color and more texture to the picture. So there's all kinds of tricks I've seen over the years, and, and I think that's really clever. So do you have any advice on, on how to kind of fix up the scenery in that regard when doing birds? <laughs> well, you, you pretty well uh, described it. Uh, there's a lot of that going on, you know, using limbs and, and mossy yeah. limbs. And usually uh, they'll, they'll put a, a solid background behind them sometime too. You know, a piece of painted paper or something like that. The, the trick is to try to make it look natural and and, and not cliche. Yeah, it's so easy to, to do that. Uh, but but again, um, I mean, you can take a you know a, a plain stick and you know the bird lands on it, and if the bird's just just sitting there, it, it's a it's a portrait. Of the yeah. Bird. Okay. You know, it's it's kind of static. But if the bird starts to to, to preen itself or something, right. or uh, the uh, better yet now with with the uh, the motor drives on the camera, if you capture it just as it takes off. Oh, yeah. Uh, or con- conversely, you get it when it's just about the land. Uh huh. You got some interesting and, stuff, right? Or or another yeah. another individual lands with it, and they have a little bit of a little bit of a spat, and you catch that on camera. Yeah. Exactly, and, and that's what I call adding layers of interest. Uh-huh. Uh, you're adding something else to it to you know. Out, something out of the ordinary you didn't expect, and it, it just uh, it has an exponential effect. You know, two birds aren't twice as better now. It, it's, it's four times as better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned something really important. So at first, you know, the portrait, taking the portrait is, is you know, pretty standard. But to I like your phrase, layers of interest, and to try to get that bird to do something. Um, and that, that means just getting lucky and getting good with your trigger finger right yeah yeah it, it, let me kind of delve a little bit more into what i consider the layers um 
uh, of course, your subject is a layer. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the base layer. Uh, somebody once said that a great photograph is just a, an ordinary subject in extraordinary lighting. Huh. So, uh, you know, the subject is the base, uh, but the most important layer is the lighting on the subject. And then on top of that, you've got a layer of the composition, uh, that bird, that deer, anything, uh, the way its body language is, is stretched, uh, you know, the movement, it, it's a change in composition. And, and it goes back to the old master's paintings. There's so many uh, common denominators. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. But, uh, but, but what I also consider a layer called the cherry on top huh. is the thing you, you don't expect when, when you're shooting a picture but happens, and it makes all the difference. Uh, you know, you can be shooting that one bird, and like you say, that second bird comes in, and they get in a fight. Yeah. Wow, you know, that, that just makes all the difference. That's your cherry on top. Ah, Cool. Yeah, and the, and the bird watcher wants to observe that too. But for a photographer to forever capture that, uh, to me, it's just magical because I can take a picture in my mind of seeing something like that. But when somebody like you takes a picture and then it's in a book or in a magazine, I just, man, I just love that. I, it, I just get really excited when I see that. I like the way you call it cherry on top. I hadn't thought about that, but I know what you're talking about. I have a friend that leads photo tours, and uh, they'll go down some river cruises sometimes on Amazon. And the uh, your birders will show up with cameras, but they're not prim- primarily photographers. So, you know, they want to stop for every bird and shoot up in trees so that you end up with a lot of bird butts, uh. basically. <laughs> uh, whereas the photographers that go, uh, you know, they may sit there for an hour concentrating on one bird. And, and invariably, you'll shoot at eye level. And that's one little tip. Whatever you're shooting, a person or a, a bird or an insect, uh, shoot it at the eye level. Yeah. Uh, that's what gives it a certain quality. Uh, too often, you know, we just want to shoot a snapshot of it and, you know, point it up in the tree. Or if it's an insect, we'll point the camera down. But anything you shoot, shoot at eye level. That, that makes a world of difference. Yeah, and I'll tell you, that reminds me of, of these pictures of birds and bobcats and other things at a, at a pond or a watering hole. And, and there are these ranches, I remember, that were digging these pits for the photographer to hide in. And, and so you're down underground and you pop up and your camera lens is laying on the ground and you're pointing at that bobcat drinking that doesn't see you or that green jay that doesn't see you. And those pictures, I think, are powerful um, and they're eye level, like you said. And the only way to do that is a, if you didn't have a pit, you'd have to lay flat on the ground, which, you know, I'm good for about four minutes of that. And then I'm ready to get, <laughs> I'm ready to get up. So those those pit blinds, I, I don't know if there's an official name for those. Um, have you ever sat in one of those before? Yeah. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and give a little plug here. It's the, uh, the, the Santa Clara Ranch uh, down by Edinburgh. And uh, they're just one of several ranches. You know, years ago, the guys couldn't make a profit with cattle land. So what they did, they, they built these blinds. You're talking about pit blinds you're talking about. And they're very comfortable. You, you take steps down into it and sit in nice, comfortable chairs. But uh, you, you, are, you are at eye level with the ground. Mm-hmm. And in that, uh, especially in that, down that Rio Grande Valley, uh, you never know what's going to show up. Yeah. There. Bobcat could be a, a, a javelina, rattlesnake. Uh, quail, uh, it's just so cool to see what yeah. comes in, and, and and they feed they feed out these little uh, water 
holes. And I mean, the holes, are, the water is only like ten feet from the blind. Uh-huh. So, um, and you're still shooting with about a 500 millimeter lens. <laughs> so, you know, people think, oh, I've got a you know big telephoto lens, I can shoot something half a mile over there. Well, no, you still kind of have to be close yeah. to 20 mil. Yeah, like we we want to see those whiskers on that bobcat face, don't we? And you need that telephoto yeah. lens. Yeah, yeah. And, and speaking of whiskers and feathers, um, uh, learn exposure, proper exposure, especially with the digital camera. Okay. Uh, it's too easy to overexpose those images. And once you overexpose an image, especially with a bird, uh, bird with white feathers or white-colored animal, uh, you will lose the detail in those feathers. Huh. Okay. And, uh, that's one of those things that gives an image presence is, uh, you know, tack sharp uh, or tactile uh, uh, feathers that you can almost touch. If it's overexposed, there's no detail in it. And, right, right. Exposure, okay. Speaking of exposure, let's talk about our show is Bird Calls. This is Cliff Shackleford. I'm, I'm partnered up here with Earl Nottingham. And if you have questions for him, you just have a few minutes left at 800-552-8502. Bird questions for me and camera and photography questions for Earl. And Earl, uh, you photographed the aftermath of a lot of natural events, including hurricanes and wildfires when you were with Parks and Wildlife. So Tell us one or two behind-the-scenes stories from those assignments, whether it's an image you saw firsthand or the people you met, um, because you captured some really neat images in those devastating events. Yeah, uh, and it goes back to, to conservation photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, our disasters are part of it. But um, uh, you know, part of the Parks and Wildlife Agency, one of the divisions, is the law enforcement division with the game wardens. And I was real lucky from the from the get go that they were comfortable inviting me to go along uh, on different missions with them, uh, activities and, and whatever to, to document their their work. And uh, I have to say that one of the most uh, memorable event was not in Texas but in Louisiana when we went to Hurricane Katrina. Uh-huh. I remember the early days of Katrina when it hit. I, like probably everybody else, was sitting in front of the TV watching everybody, you know, wading through the the lower ninth ward and things like that. And anyway, then about that time, the head game warden calls and says, hey, uh, Louisiana has asked us to come help with search and rescue. Would you like to go? Well, yeah. So uh, after a couple hepatitis shots, uh we all went to Louisiana, and uh, sure enough, they, they put us in that infamous Lower Ninth Ward uh, because they had airboats. We had kind of a convoy of airboats uh, pull into Louisiana and uh, going up and down those those flooded streets. And that's the area where you know people were getting shot at. You know? oh. so, uh, uh, the game board, I, I did them afterwards that you know they all had their protective bulletproof vest on. And I'm standing up on the front of an airboat in this big orange PFD yeah. life jacket. It kind of screams, shoot me first. <laughs> but, uh, but we went through those streets, you know, and they, did, uh, they rescued people. But, but um, you know, what made it uh, what burned into my mind was you know, everything you saw. It, it was surreal. That's the only word yeah. for it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with, with the loss of life and the, 
uh, you know, smell everything. And uh, uh, but I was documenting documenting it in, in I guess you call a photojournalistic uh, mode. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, you have to kind of change photographic modes. You know, when you're out touching birds, you're in nature mode, and doing portraits, you're in a portrait mode, and yeah. uh, something like a hurricane, you're, you're in a photojournalistic mode. But so, I would say, you know, Rito was one. Uh, you know, we had Harvey uh, Ike was another big one, especially on the Texas coast. Ike was memorable too. Uh, the high island area flooded. Yeah. And just all the all the things that, that that came with that and the devastation. So, uh, you know, it was sad to see, especially the loss of life. But that's, that's nature. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember seeing pictures of of the ranchers moving their cows to higher ground. Um, those are always neat pictures. Um, the the alligators that are belly up that didn't didn't do well with the saltwater surge. Um, I mean, all that's worth documenting it. I wouldn't call it exploitive. I'd call it, you know, bringing reality to the viewer and showing them what it's like to go through that. Of course, we don't feel what that person's doing, but you as a photographer is capturing that, that facial expression of folks that are going through um, these events. So, um, yeah, very, very neat that you got to document a lot of that for the rest of us to see. So Earl, say, we had, oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. No, no, you go well, ahead. I just, had uh, when we were down uh, at Anawak uh, for Ike, uh, I was with the game wardens, and somebody called. Hey, I got uh, snakes in my backyard. Uh, the, their house was in a subdivision that backed up uh, to the bay there, uh, across from, from Galveston, and uh, they uh, evidently the the, t- the surge had pushed all the snakes from this low-lying area into this kind of elevated huh. subdivision. And so we went out there, and, and of course, there's the waves are still crashing. It's still windy. This is the day after. And, uh, you know, reeds or brown reeds are piled up, but it, in among brown reeds are brown snakes. I, I thought you had every water moccasin and uh, rattlesnake in the county, I think, in this subdivision. So there was a guy out there with a 12-gauge shotgun, shooting snakes, keep them coming in his house, and they, they were crawled in bushes. So it, it was like kind of a weird dream. Yeah, that is interesting, yeah. So it, it's not a yard you wanted to walk across, right, during that that moment with all those snakes, huh? Not at all. No. So I like to ask people about bucket lists, and as a photographer, what what's high on your bucket list of species or locations that you've never photograph that are high on your bucket list do you have any places you want to go or species you want to photograph you, you know I, I thought about that long and hard because uh, i've heard other photographers ask that same question and uh as it turns out i'm kind of into serendipity i uh, i just like things to happen and they uh, usually do happen uh, 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 as opposed to like, i'm going to do this or i want to do this uh, I'm always happy just to see what opportunity pops up. Okay. They always do. Uh, I mean, obviously, I, I spent 25 years photographing Texas, and that's about as far as I got. So yeah. We're trying to make up for lost time now and, and uh, you know, try some other, other locations out of state and out of country. 
and uh, you know the usual places, uh, you know Colorado, Grand Canyon, or not Grand Canyon, but uh, Yellowstone. We're going there next month. All right. Uh, you know, love to do Italy. Uh, just you know the regular places. Uh, I know a lot of my friends are going to Antarctica. That, that's a new go-to place. Neat, neat penguins. I, I, I've got to see a penguin. I'm that's high on my list too to see some icebergs and penguins. So, yeah. so Earl, tell us uh, where where were you when you saw something really special that was worth photographing, but you missed it because either you didn't have your camera handy or you may have had a mechanical malfunction. So, you know, I'm I'm just curious what what did you miss because of, of circumstances? Well, uh, in very invariably you miss the shot because you you lose the light. Uh. Um, I know I was one location, a uh, thunderstorm over uh, Big Bend, and there was just a gorgeous rainbow, and I, over the mountains, and you know, everything was perfect, composition, light, yada yada yada. And uh, of course, my camera was in the bag, and in the few minutes it took to get the camera, it was gone. And so the I mean, the lesson for me was, you know, you always need to have your camera ready, you know, whether it's an iPhone. Uh, you know, other device or your professional camera, have it ready at all times because, you know, something's going to be fleeting. There's going to be an animal out there. Uh, But but other than that, I can't really think of one I missed because I've usually been fairly prepared. Oh, good. Uh, I haven't seen any UFOs or anything to miss. So So you treat your camera like your shoes, you've always got it on? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much. Yep, put your pants on, your shirt, your shoes, and your camera. In that order, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I've got to say, the the new generation of uh, uh, mobile devices, uh, you know, iPhones, all the other ones, uh, they do such a wonderful job, and and they're with you all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not such a photo snob that, you know, I, I think they're not good cameras. So, but they've allowed me to catch good spontaneous shots. And, and that's the key to, to be spontaneous and, and have that ready. Huh. Awesome. So we've got just a f- couple minutes left, Earl. Um, just if you can explain how the change from slide and print film to digital photography was like for you and, and the industry. You know, I keep thinking of what happened to Kodak paper and ectochrome film. And so maybe give us the 90-second version or answer to that if you could okay well of course uh i kept my teeth on the you know black and white photography and i still have uh uh d76 and dectal in my veins and developer for for negative and films and i love that i still every now and then have to go back and process choose some and process some just to just to relive the uh the smells and the uh, the the feeling of that first picture i developed at the at the photo studio but uh you know, I went kicking and screaming into the digital age when we got our first digital camera uh, at the agency. I, I thought it was a joke. I think it, we paid five thousand dollars for it, and it was Ooh. a whopping three meg, three megapixels. And uh, so I said, "This is a joke. It's going to go away. We'll be back to real film pretty soon." But as the resolution uh, of, the, of the cameras increased and the, and the amount of pixels of the sharpness, it finally met and exceeded what we could do with, with film. And at that point, there was no looking back. Uh, such a great tool. It, it's instant. You see it. You, you know whether you have the, in, the image or not. 
and, and nowadays in such a fast society, you know, it's we're, we're pumping out images left and right. Yeah. Uh, our lives revolve around you know, posting images, and uh, it's for enjoyment, and, and that's what it's all about. You know, that's what photography is. It's just for, for enjoyment of life and sharing the experiences with somebody else, and the, the new cameras let you do that. It's a whole new world. Awesome. Well, speaking of enjoyment, Earl, we've really enjoyed having you on the air with us tonight and talking about photography and what you've done. And uh, again, I want to plug your book, Wild Focus. Um, and, and Earl's got all the royalties um, for the sale of this book going back to, help me out, Earl, conservation? Uh, yeah, it's the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation. The foundation, of course. Yeah. So, so yeah. any sale of the book does not the pros, pro, uh, royalties proceeds don't go into Earl's pocket. It goes back to conservation. So, pick up a copy of Wild Focus by, by Earl Nottingham. And Earl, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Thanks, Cliff. I've, I've totally enjoyed it. Great. Thank you, sir. All right, we end every episode with a conservation tip. Tonight, we're going to talk about a bio blitz. Participate in a bio blitz near you. There's a rich diversity of species around us, both flora and fauna. One way to learn more about them is to participate in what's known as a bio blitz. A bio blitz is an event that focuses on finding and identifying as many species as possible, whether plant, animal, fungi, or more that occur in a specific area over a short period of time. Groups of scientists, naturalists, and volunteers conduct these intensive field events, usually within a 24-hour period. Some parks and refuges, possibly near you, host BioBlitz events with experts in attendance. This is a great way to learn some of the critters around you and to participate in collecting basic information like what on earth occurs here. If no BioBlitz is scheduled near you, contact your nearby park, refuge, nature center, university, or the like and organize one. Knowledge of the local flora and fauna, especially which ones are native or not, will enrich you and your community. Do it for the birds. So this concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackleford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio. I thank our guest Earl Nottingham, who joined us by phone this evening. Bird Calls has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. The photo of the yellow-throated vireo on the Bird Calls webpage was snapped by James Childress. The sound recording we played was by Mike Nelson and was found at the website xenocanto.org. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. And remember, if you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like for me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, April 11th, which, along with entomologist Dr. Beverly Burden, will be the sixth annual joint episode that we affectionately called the birds and the bees episode so please join us for next month's bird calls and what's bugging you and remember do it for the birds